I'm Jim Benson, co-author with Scott Skelton of Rod Serling's Night Gallery and After Hours Tour. tonight, Bob Crane, Joanne Worley, Victor Bono, Forrest Tucker, and John Aston. Night Gallery artist Tom Wright decided on a somewhat literal interpretation of this segment's title, albeit with a little twist, as Tom Wright describes in the following clip. The title worked well on that for me eventually. A house with ghosts. Once I had the house, and I made it elongated and long windows and stuff. And then in the windows, I would put the ghost. You know, it was, it was kind of lighthearted. And it wasn't one of them that scared you to death. It worked well. I didn't know it worked that well. Here is a night gallery with much greater potential than was realized, leaning a bit too much on the comedy side, when a somewhat darker approach would have been much more effective. While flawed, House with Ghost is still a well-paced, witty, and enjoyable diversion. This trifle on infidelity most likely was chosen to lead off the hour based on the popularity of its two stars, but Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator would have made a much stronger segment to open the hour. With at least one critic praising the hour as having, quote, four of its better episodes, the segment's main weakness lies in Bob Crane and Joanne Worley's identification with two of TV's top comedy shows, Hogan's Heroes and Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, giving certain critics of the series reason to compare Night Gallery unflatteringly with Love American style. Bob Crane was cast by Jack Laird to play Ellis Travers in May of 1971, only one month after Hogan's Heroes aired its final episode. A talented actor, Crane was looking to break out of Hollywood's typecasting camp after six years of playing POW Colonel Hogan on the hit CBS sitcom. House with Ghost was an ideal start for the actor, effectively transforming Crane from hero to villain as Carol M. Ford, co-author with Linda J. Groundwater of Bob Crane, the definitive biography explains in the following clip. She was incredibly typecast as Hogan, as Colonel Hogan. And so he's looking at different things. He's also looking to, he's known as a comedy guy. He did great comedy in radio when he was in radio for 15 years. I mean, he's a funny guy. He likes to make people laugh. He likes to laugh. But as an actor, he's also starting to grow. And so in this vein, he's starting to take, yes, jobs that are available to him to pay the bills, but he's also starting to look at how he can hone his acting skills and broaden his horizons in the acting field where it's not just, he's not just a one-hit wonder. He is someone who's actually now learning the craft and taking it very seriously. He did this even before Hogan's Heroes when he was on the Donna Reed show when he took a course taught by Stella Adler to really start to learn acting as a craft. And that was something that he really was serious about and what he wanted to, to do as he was moving forward. 
House with Ghost features one of Night Gallery's strongest supporting casts, featuring a trio of legendary character actors. Usually cast as a judge or priest, Eric Christmas turns in a marvelous performance as a real estate agent whose homes are not only habitable, but inhabited. Christmas's scene with Bob Crane is filled with comic subtlety and nuance, and it's easily the episode's finest moment. Yes, it's the main attraction for my wife. Bob Crane began his entertainment career in radio, hosting a morning show on KNX AM in Los Angeles. The show ultimately became LA's number one radio program and a hit among not only drive time listeners, but the Hollywood community as well. Crane revolutionized radio by putting on a daily variety show for his listeners, complete with witty comedy bits, playing the drums on the air, and in-studio interviews with some of Tinseltown's biggest stars, Marilyn Monroe, Frank Sinatra, and Bob Hope. Among the stars interviewed by Bob Crane on his radio show was Rod Serling. Crane was a fan of Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone, in fact, the young radio host made his acting debut on Serling's series, well, at least his voice did, playing a radio announcer in the 1961 second season Twilight Zone episode, Static. Rod Serling was also a fan of Crane's radio show, and the two enjoyed a breezy banter when Serling appeared on the December 11, 1961 broadcast of the Bob Crane radio show, as we'll hear in the following clip. But you have never run into a sponsor or a network resistance on any of only, your shows? Uh, well, not on the Twilight Zone. Only once we had a show where it took place on a British steamer. Yeah. And uh, the captain had a line where he said, bring me up some tea to the bridge, which, you know, is a, a traditional thing with the British. They drink tea all the time. Yeah. Well, we had a sponsor who made instant coffee, and they wouldn't permit the mention of tea. They didn't make tea. So they made the captain say, bring him up some coffee. So we changed it to sandwiches. Oh, I don't know really? what he drank. Seawater, I think. Uh, really? Yeah, that's the only major problem. Major problem. It's the only problem we've ever had on the show. For goodness sake. Except that they kept saying that I should look taller, and that's impossible. <laughs> they used to say, I, I did one acting stint one time in my life. I've only acted once, Bob, on a, on a Desi Lou show, and they kept saying, bring out the man maker. And this was like a cigar box about four inches high, and they made me stand on this thing because I was, my head, uh, you know, hit a Keenan Wynn's belt buckle. Yeah. And I, I look like kind of Mickey Rooney <laughs> with dark hair. Actually, what is your height, Don? Five, five and a half. Oh, that's nice. He said proudly with a glint in his eye. Bob Crane used his radio show, in part, as a springboard to enter the acting business, and it worked. Crane was ultimately cast in such shows as Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and a regular role in The Donna Reed Show, which led to Crane starring in the classic CBS TV comedy, Hogan's Heroes. One issue with any performance of Bob Crane is that viewers frequently view his work through the prism of his personal life and tragic end, as Bob Crane co-author Carol M. Ford explains in the following clip. Unfortunately, what happens is, is a lot of the roles that Bob takes are compared to his, what we later learn to be real life. So he's murdered in real life, and he has affairs, and he has a sexual addiction in real life. And so, you know, people tend to forget that they're watching a character. Like Bob is an actor, he's playing a character. And so a lot of the outside stuff kind of gets projected onto the role that he is playing. 
that piece of it, we need to start looking at the work that Bob Crane is doing on screen. He's not a bad guy in real life. He got mixed up in something that was the basic human weakness. All of that aside, his work on screen should stand for what it is, and his work on screen is very, very good. Is he excellent at this point? Yeah, he had work to do, and he knew that, and he was working on developing those acting skills and, and increasing his performances on screen. Well, these gardens are an absolute mess. Our ghost does not have a green thumb, you know what I mean? Joanne Worley was born on September 6, 1937, in Lowell, Indiana. After studying drama at the Midwestern State University, she eventually moved to Los Angeles to study acting at the Pasadena Playhouse. In the mid-1960s, Worley headed to Broadway and started her own nightclub act in Greenwich Village, where she was discovered by singer and talk show host Merv Griffin. Worley appeared on the Merv Griffin Show over 40 times, and that nationwide exposure brought her to the attention of producer George Schlatter, who ultimately cast her as one of the comedy players on his new sketch comedy series on NBC, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Laugh-In became an instant mega-hit and catapulted Joanne Worley to superstardom. When cast for House with Ghost, Joanne Worley was in similar territory as her co-star Bob Crane, having left her smash hit TV show Laugh-In one year earlier. In at least one respect, Worley was the optimal choice to play the terrorized Iris Travers for the actress naturally possessed a talent essential to a show like Night Gallery. Quote, when you grow up on a farm, recalled Worley, your parents aren't always going, shh, shh, quiet. You can go out and scream and holler and yell as much as you want. And if you want to call somebody, you really have to project. My whole family screams. Over the next several decades, Joanne Worley starred in such TV series as Adam 12, Emergency, Murder, She Wrote, and became well-known for her voice artist work in such productions as Beauty and the Beast, DuckTales, The Pink Panther, and a goofy movie. Trisha Noble plays Ellis Travers' Dolly Bird, who is waiting patiently for her investment in the murderous philanderer to pay off. In the 1970s, Noble appeared in myriad TV series including Beretta, Columbo, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and The Bob Crane Show in an episode entitled, But I Love My Wife. Stop cursing your bloody guts for leaving. House with Ghost marks the fourth time that Gene Kearney both wrote and directed a segment of Night Gallery. A trusted friend and colleague of producer Jack Laird, Gene Kearney served as the unofficial right-hand man to the eccentric producer, as Night Gallery artist Tom Wright explains in the following clip. I think because he was a writer and a director, that was a big plus for Jack. And I think he probably just answered the questions the way Jack wanted them answered, because you've got to work with them and get along or you don't make it, you know. All I can say is when I dealt with him, and he was very nice to me, and he was low-key, we got the work done and moved on. That didn't get in our way. You know, I didn't have any big episodes with him like I'm sure Jack had. Gene Kearney's profile on Night Gallery was considerable, writing 11 segments and directing nine, most notably his classic second season episode, Silent Snow, Secret Snow. 
Gene Kearney was a talent who was very much appreciated by creator Rod Serling, as we'll hear in the following clip. Uh, Gene Kearney did quite a few for us. Gene Kearney, who also wrote, and is a pretty fair director, too, and a good writer. Jack Laird took an interest in Kearney, a New York native and a Harvard graduate, and their careers shadowed each other from their work on Bob Hope Presents the Chrysler Theater until Gene Kearney's untimely death in 1979. In his first of three appearances on Night Gallery, this segment, Sins of the Fathers, and the third season episode Fright Night, Alan Napier in House with Ghost makes an excellent impression as the compassionate country doctor. Best known for playing Alfred the Butler in the 1960s TV series Batman, Alan Napier had a remarkable career as a character actor, appearing in 147 film and television productions. Alan Napier appeared in such classic films as Cat People, Lassie Come Home, Johnny Belinda, Journey to the Center of the Earth, My Fair Lady, and many, many more. We, uh, we'll do a biopsy, of course, and we won't say anything about it yet, but uh, realistically... Originally, this hour of Night Gallery was supposed to feature only three segments, which is the reason why Ron Serling started his introduction by saying there were, quote, three paintings on display. The show's musical chairs production schedule made necessary the inclusion of a midnight visit to the neighborhood blood bank at the last minute, a fairly common occurrence on this series, as production associate Herbert J. Wright explains in the following clip. Each hour could contain as many as four or five episodes. That was the theory. And what we tried to do is keep it down to three. So you'd have varying lengths that would suddenly have to fit together. So each of the, the scripts not only had to be rewritten for themselves to make the story work, they had to be the appropriate length to fit into this little puzzle because it was not a straightforward cut in half hours. That's what Universal did later on. They cut these things. They cut them up so they could re-release them in half hours, and it was made as an hour show. It was never a half-hour show. All the scripts had to, however many scripts there were going to be, had to fit inside of that hour. We, we had to do that. So you got one that you expected to come in at 30 minutes, you realize it was going to play better at like 38 minutes or something. And all of a sudden, meant the one that was going to be 20 minutes had to be 12 minutes. <laughs> and the blackout that was going to be four minutes all of a sudden had to be three minutes. I mean, it was that kind of craziness going on back and forth because as you change each one of the scripts, <laughs> each of the other ones, if you suddenly said, oh, no, it's going to work better if we drop this whole scene in this one, Jack, that means we had to come up with another scene or put something back in the other one before we got to the set. We so, have three different directors going or four different directors going and three different sets, and, and we'd be racing from one to the other, and, and it, it was insane. That's why no one's tried to do this since. I am keeping my promise. B, it'll only be for a few more months. No, Ducky. Not even a few more hours. What do you mean? A, forget it, Ellis. B, don't worry your little head about a single thing. Because, C, it's all over, Ducky.
nothing anymore. Bernard Fox is dead on as the late Mr. Carnby, who won't rest in peace unless he gets a piece of the action. At the time, Fox and Bob Crane were on tour together, co-starring in the play Beginner's Luck. The two shared a remarkable chemistry, as Bob Crane biographer Carol M. Ford explains in the following clip. It's fun to see Bob Crane and Bernard Fox acting together, but like audiences recognize both of them in their Colonel Hogan, Colonel Crittenden roles. <laughs> you know, Colonel Crittenden is Colonel Hogan's real nemesis in addition to Colonel Kling. In House of Ghosts, the tables are turned because Bob Crane's character is much in uh, debt to the Bernard Fox character. And so it's very, it's very dark and it's very serious. <laughs> what do you need money for? Eh? I'm a man of my word. B, I'm responsibilities. To who? Your widow? She's in great shape. Don't sweat. She's living in Brighton. She's having a ball. Just ask Mr. Chichester. Oh, no, Mr. Travers. You see, my wife upset the provisions of my will. She troubled my afterlife. <sighs> no, Mrs. Canby won't be getting another shilling from me. Or you. The, uh, the full address of the person you'll make the payments to is on the top of this bill. She's living in Manchester. Ah, she's out. House with Ghosts short story author August Derleth and writer-director Gene Kearney demonstrate how infidelity can lead to indebtedness in perpetuity. All in all, an imperfect yet satisfying segment of Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Artist Tom Wright based the composition of this painting on a sinister still from D.W. Griffith's silent film, The Sorrows of Satan. Hi, Scott Skelton here. I'll take over from Jim to comment on the next part of this episode. This blackout sketch on the well-trod vampire theme is little more than filler for the hour, included at the last minute when a decision was made to trim Dr. Stringfellow's rejuvenator to tighten its pacing. The intended victim in the sketch was played by Juni Laird, the producer's stepdaughter. This was actor Victor Buono's first visit to the Night Gallery, to be followed by Satisfaction Guaranteed later in the production schedule. His larger-than-life persona was used to highly amusing effect in his two vignettes, the maniacal gleam in his eye conveying an aptly demented quality. He's probably best known for his performance as Edwin Flagg, the creepy musical accompanist who plots to bilk faded child celebrity Baby Jane Hudson in the horror classic Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Playing opposite silver screen titans Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, Bono succeeded in matching and occasionally surpassing Davis's highly colored performance, ensuring him an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Bono quipped on his experience, Betty Davis told me that I was one of the few actors who had ever upstaged her.
Here's one of my favorite night gallery paintings for one of my favorite episode segments. Rod Serling's cynical portrait of an unscrupulous snake oil salesman in the Old West inspired this massive canvas from artist Tom Wright, who sought to take that familiar imagery and make it much more mysterious. And so he obscured the peddler's facial features with deep shadows, as much in the dark as the character's humanity. Serling's strengths in realistically presenting small-time hustlers and other clutter from the urban landscape are here transplanted effectively to a frontier setting. Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator is another of Serling's tragedy-come-ethics lessons, and his characterizations, infused with a wary cynicism, are razor-sharp, sad, and poetic. Chanos Fark, who was hands down the series' busiest director, once claimed that the scripts he'd get on Night Gallery were like reading poetry compared to what you'd get on other shows. You get a taste of what he was talking about by hearing how Serling sets the scene for this segment. Fade in. Exterior desert town, circa 1880s. Day. We're looking at a four-building village, dusty white in a boiling sun. Outside of some errant cactus, some creosote, and a couple of scrawny shrubs, there is no vegetation at all. Just four wooden frame buildings representing a hotel, a combination general store post office undertaking parlor, a blacksmith's barn, and a combination church and meeting hall. Atop the general store is a large sign reading Bartleby and Sons, first-class burials, services for the dead, pickup and delivery, satisfaction guaranteed. There are a few wagons pulled up, but the focus of attention is on one in particular, a garishly colored traveling medicine show with flamboyantly curly-cued lettering which reads, Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator, and standing on the platform is Dr. Ernest Stringfellow himself. Alongside is his assistant, Rolfo, a giant bald-headed oaf with a walnut-sized brain and a muscular body gone to flesh. He's in the process of lugging out a giant carton filled with bottles. Stringfellow is in his 50s, skinny, bony, frock-coated, hatchet-faced, and a conniver from his crotch to where he parts his hair. At the moment, he's banging on an ancient drum, looking out at the country people, the farmers and their families who start to move toward him, wide-eyed, ingenuous, a convocation of sucker bait. Angle favoring Stringfellow as his eyes dart around the faces of the farmers, in all things, he is a judge of men, and he waits for the moment when the annual fleecing game can commence. When a crowd of perhaps 15 people are gathered, Stringfellow stops beating the drum, rises, picks up a bottle from the box, holds it up, addressing his audience in a stentorian tone. Angle from Stringfellow's point of view, panning the audience, reacting wide-eyed and open-mouthed. These are normally tight, taut people of the soil, reticent and reluctant, but Stringfellow moves them from palm to palm. Serling, with his colorful prose, sketches in just enough detail to drive the story, giving the director plenty of leeway to visualize the scene and the actors' inspiration to create their characters. Director Gerald Friedman recalls the production with enthusiasm, reserving much praise for the members of the cast. Quote, I have a lot of good memories. Forrest Tucker was terrific to work with. You know, you work with all these guys that get stereotyped into stuff like F Troop and all, and you don't realize they really are good actors. And he was really a good actor. And where I'm from... Forrest was an old line, real Hollywood actor. You know, he drank like a fucking fish. I worked with a lot of guys like this. He was an actor like Ben Johnson, like a guy like Bob Mitchum. You know, he was always on time. He always knew his lines. You know, he'd give you all kinds of shit, but he was there. He was a professional actor. 
he would often like some of these other guys. He, he'd say, "Hey, let's try this." This or I, I did this once in a movie. This might work, you know. And I always was pretty open to that stuff. I mean, Night Gallery was fun. If you couldn't have fun on a, on a show like Night Gallery, you should be at this. They got very short tempers and long memories. A versatile and talented performer, Forrest Tucker was the perfect choice to play Serling's flamboyant flim-flam man. Between 1958 and 1963, Tucker played Professor Harold Hill in the stage production of the Meredith Wilson musical, The Music Man. Robert Preston, as the performer who first played the role on Broadway and in the movie, is most closely identified with the fast-talking con man. But Tucker performed the role more than 2,000 times on stage, which included a 56-week run at the prestigious Schubert Theater in Chicago. With so many performances under his belt, Tucker was able to transition from Hill to Stringfellow effortlessly. Said Tucker, quote, Stringfellow's the same kind of con artist, only he sells snake oil instead of trombones. I've also played a medicine man on Wagon Train, and even played one in disguise on F Troop. Big, bombastic, outgoing guys are simple to play. You can chew up scenery with them, unquote. The veteran actor relished playing such types and threw himself into the role of the soulless grifter. Tucker was also drawn to Serling's bigger-than-life creation due to his lifelong fascination with traveling sideshows. I've always liked carnivals, he enthused. I've become a carnival man. A friend of mine is president of the West Coast Carnival Show, and he gave me an opportunity to buy into it. I bought a piece of it for fun, and I've been with it now nine years. Here, Tucker crafts a compelling performance, really digging into Serling's con artist hustler. In public a tireless promoter of his abilities and prowess, in private, a hollow, empty man. But the richness of Tucker's performance lies in little details of expression that suggest a hint, a glimmer of humanity. He gets across a fleeting sense that Stringfellow was once, in his distant past, a compassionate man. This won't take long. It's me, honey. I brought this good doctor here, and he's gonna make. It's clear from Stringfellow's response upon seeing the farmer's daughter that he knows she's not long for this world. He's no physician, but you don't need medical training to diagnose someone that afflicted. Right here. He even seems to express some small, wordless sympathy for the child for a moment or two, and then he falls back on his default instinct of fleecing suckers and sells the poor farmer some of his worthless physic to spoon feed the doomed girl. Without exception, Tucker's co-stars are on the same level of quality. Lou Frizzell's strong performance as the desperate farmer rings with pain and sincerity. Frizzell was a popular character actor throughout the rest of the 1970s until his untimely death in 1979, and can be seen prominently in films like Lawman, Summer of 42, Steven Spielberg's Duel, The Other, The Front Page, and Capricorn One. Stringfellow. Murray Hamilton had a very high profile as one of the most versatile, distinguished, and prolific character actors of his generation. He played an efficient, executive-styled Mr. Death in another of Serling's tales of a desperate pitchman, the Twilight Zone episode One for the Angels, and he offers a bitter draft in this spiritual cousin of that piece as Stringfellow's gadfly, the derelict Snyder. 
He will always best be known for his role as Larry Vaughn, the politics playing mayor of Amity Island in Spielberg's hugely popular film Jaws, but his career was long and varied. His own dictum was always to be, quote, true to the part as it is written, unquote, and that principle served him and his audience as well. One highlight of his career was the role of Mrs. Robinson's deceived husband in The Graduate. New York Times movie critic Bosley Crowther praised his performance, stating, quote, Murray Hamilton is piercing, a seemingly self-indulgent type who is sharply revealed as bewildered and wounded in one fine, funny scene, unquote. By a, drunk. Doubtless. a short list of his other top roles includes No Time for Sergeants, Anatomy of a Murder, The Hustler, Seconds, The Boston Strangler, The Way We Were, The Drowning Pool, The Amityville Horror, 1941, and Brubaker. Although Don Pedro Colley, who plays Stringfellow's assistant, Rolfo, was a relative newcomer to film, he found the atmosphere on the set warmly inclusive. Quote, Forrest was a really nice guy, just a regular fellow. He allowed us to really communicate, performer to performer. We talked a bit between takes, and he told me that he had had a real drinking problem once upon a time, and he'd finally kind of half-licked it by then. I even met his daughter along the way. She came to visit the set. Unquote. Beautiful performance by Tucker here, very subtle, and beautifully lit by cinematographer Lionel Curly Linden, who's responsible for lighting and shooting all the segments produced in the first half of the second season. I must also give a shout-out to composer Gil Mallet, not just for his sensitive score for this segment, but for providing the music for the entire hour, the only episode in which all the music was Gil's, who in general was only responsible for the main and end title music for the series. His somber, elegiac score for Stringfellow adds an appropriate touch of melancholy, helping make this mid-season episode a night gallery highlight. Such was the quality of his music, Gil would use one of its subsidiary themes, titled I Sell Faith, and use it as the main theme for his hauntingly beautiful, sweeping score for the 1973 telefeature, Frankenstein, The True Story. Collie was a popular actor during this period, with guest roles on TV for Here Come the Brides, Cimarron Strip, The Wild Wild West, and a returning role in Daniel Boone. His film roles include Beneath the Planet of the Apes, George Lucas's first film, THX 1138, Black Caesar, and Sugar Hill. His character in Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator is essentially Rod Serling's touchstone of conscience in the play, and clearly sees Stringfellow for who he truly is. From the start, Friedman encouraged Collie to develop his own sense of the character. That was kind of his cover, was the slowness. He had more awareness. You did feel that there was something else going on there. I think that was the element of his mystery that, you know, that eventually led to the kind of strange downfall of this Dr. Stringfellow. One of Don Pedro Colley's thespian brainstorms caused him serious discomfort during the shooting of this saloon scene. I do remember one scene in there where we were in the bar and I I strangled myself. I put myself in a corner. It was stupid. Uh, I started up the scene. I said, well, i got to have some kind of action to do here. We're sitting at this table. What am I going to do? Okay, I'll, I'll eat a boiled egg. <laughs> a hard boiled egg. 
five takes later. Oh, God. <laughs> it was ridiculous. You know, and, and we all had a great laugh over the fact that I had put myself in his damn corner. This conversational exchange between Rolfo and Stringfellow is, in my opinion, Serling at his best. As Stringfellow explains his sales philosophy and, by extension, his moral ambivalence and cynical worldview. Cully recalled the filming of this segment with affection, and he was gratified to get to work in such a welcoming production. I was uh, very impressed because I, you know, I've known Murray's work over the years. And he was originally a southerner. He had a southern twang that was his naturally. And so, I, you know, I said, well, I'll just approach this guy. What the hell? We'll talk. We're actors. And he told me about some of the plays that he did in New York when he was coming up and some of the famous people that he'd worked with. And, and he was lamenting over problems that were beginning to rear their ugly head in the business uh, uh, about you know, no respect for the performers and their craftsmanship and, and the whole nine yards. And he was a nice guy, too. I got along with everybody. I had no problem whatsoever. It was just marvelous. Very surprised, I guess, that they all treated me with the same kind of equal respect, one-on-one. -on -one. It was no, we were all working together to try and get the best out of this. When we started out to shoot the thing, they asked me, how did I want to approach doing this thing? Which was quite unusual. I mean, they usually they say, go and stand there and do your lines and do this and that. But this was a real collaborative affair. And uh, we sat and we talked about how it should be put together and what we should try and accomplish out of it for the sake of the material itself, not for anybody's, you know, fresh face or stardom or whatever. Then reading the script, it had some real possibilities, and it took a little work to get the subtext out, which was, you know, really important. And uh, that meant sitting around and talking and chewing on it for a while and learning each other's strengths and weaknesses and... Yeah, it was just exciting as hell for me because I was the real newcomer in the whole thing. But uh, they gave me uh, my side of respect, and that was wonderful. It was just wonderful. Dr. Schneider here is a protector of the common good. He's a drunk and a sot and an unhealed healer, but he, he claims to speak for the speechless. Composer Gil Millet spoke with me about his passion for composing on electronic instruments and how he integrated them into the standard orchestral ensembles available to him at the studio. With the, when I did Night Gallery and Andromeda Strain, I would say that 90% of the instruments that I used were all ones that I had built from 1958, 1958 right up until, you know, the time when synthesizers became plentiful, which was in the 70s, you know, when the people like ARP came out with affordable stuff and Moog and all this. So, you know, at the time, it was uh, it was really a very singular achievement. I mean, to do the first synthesized motion picture and uh, the first synthesized television movie and the first synthesized series, which was Night Gallery. So I, I did all three of those things. The theme for Night Gallery and the format and the bumpers and all, whatever that whole package was that you heard continually on Night Gallery, that was all done electronically. That was me playing all of those parts. The stuff, the scores for those three shows was done in an amalgamation of electronic instruments and orchestral instruments done in real time. Yeah, in other words, I had, in addition to strings and percussion and woodwinds and brass, I also had an electronic section. I had three or four people that I had been training to play a number of instruments and sort of act as a section within the orchestra. Sure. 
I played on a lot of the things myself. But the un underscore for the show was it was a combination. I mean, it was not overdubbed electronics. It was live electronics done with the orchestra and recorded in real time. With okay. It. But the format for the show was pure electronic music. That was a one-man band doing that. Save for the unfortunate use of day-for-night photography, which was Night Gallery's eternal hobgoblin, the rest of the production is on an equal plane with the fine performances. Art director Joseph Alves, who would soon be getting very creative at designing Wild West saloons with The Waiting Room later in the season, and his partner in crime, D.P. Curly Linden, create out of backlot odds and ends a frontier town limbo, all dust, tumbleweeds, and chiaroscuro, the twilight zone out west. And certainly fans of the Twilight Zone have seen multiple examples of Serling's fascination with street corner pitchmen and Old West medicine men. The tender fable One for the Angels and the gritty noir What You Need exemplify the former. But he reserves his more trenchant and bitter observations for the frontier variety, with Mr. Denton on Doomsday, Dust, and Mr. Garrity in the Graves. Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator, as his final visitation of the theme surrounding this colorful figure of the American cultural landscape, is arguably his finest dramatic meditation on the subject. Well, I'm traveling, man. And you'll never run out of places to travel to, will you? Or poor, ignorant people to rob. Deep pools. Horace Tucker appeared in some true cinema classics in his time. The Yearling, Sands of Iwo Jima, Auntie Mame. And he starred in his share of westerns in the 50s, including playing Wild Bill Hickok to Charlton Heston's Buffalo Bill Cody in Pony Express and he appeared in no less than four Randolph Scott movies, including Rage at Dawn and The Nevadan. Neither was Night Gallery his first foray into the horror field. In the late 50s, he starred in a pair of British horror films, The Abominable Snowman and The Trollenberg Terror, known in the U.S. as The Crawling Eye, both of them worth looking up. Serling's clever twist on the Western cliché of the Main Street gunfight, the typical showdown between the story's protagonist and antagonist, was shot with some slight differences from his scripted description. Exterior Hotel, Night. Stringfellow comes out the door, stands on the porch for a moment, takes out a cheroot, scratches a match on his pants. Camera zooms in tight on his face, illuminated by the match as his eyes go wide whip pan away from him toward the road where we see, through the fog-like dust raised by the howling windstorm, an indistinct outline. The figure of the little girl just standing there, staring. Reverse angle, Stringfellow, girl's point of view. Finding his voice, he takes a step toward the girl. Stringfellow, is this a haunt or a resurrection? Did you kick yourself out of that pine coffin? or are you just a floating spirit to point a finger at me? Another angle, moving with Stringfellow as he advances toward the little girl. Stringfellow. Well, I'll tell you something, child. If it's the former, if that caramel-colored nothing that I bottled performed a miracle, we can both be rich. I don't mean just rich. I mean we can own the earth. Stay there, child. Just stay there. Shot. Top of general store. Favoring sign reading Bartleby and Sons, first class burials, etc. Caught by the wind, it is wrenched loose, swaying precariously. 
down angle, Stringfellow and little girl. He continues to walk toward her. She holds out her hands to him. Suddenly, as if instinctively warned of his peril, he glances upward, freezes, camera zooming in on his horror-stricken face. Stringfellow's point of view, falling sign as it comes hurtling downward. A throttled scream. Abrupt cut to interior undertaker's parlor. Night. As you may have already guessed from that script excerpt, this segment as shot did not survive complete in the editing phase. It was determined by the series producer that it was dragging a bit, so parts of the whole wound up on the cutting room floor. A line or two in the first exchange between Stringfellow and Snyder were lost. Some footage was cut from the haunting scene that takes place in the dusty street between Stringfellow and the shade of the farmer's daughter. And the final scene in the mortuary between Rolfo and the Undertaker was truncated. The syndication version reinstates the footage and dialogue trimmed from the original and gives the audience the full Serling experience. This fine-tuning didn't really do much damage, but to be honest, the cuts were so minor, it did nothing to change the pacing, at least in my view. Again, it's for the individual viewer to decide. The painting for Hell's Bells is perhaps the most vivid and colorful canvas created by Tom Wright, as the artist explains in the following clip. That one is a really interesting painting because you really have to look at it to see what's going on. With the little figures, that one was fun to do, and uh, I thought it worked perfectly without hitting it right on the nose. With a hilarious John Astin in the lead, Hell's Bells rises above the standard night gallery spoof, perhaps the funniest the series produced. The actor admitted that he was perfect for this role because in 1971, John Astin was an actual hippie, so it really wasn't a stretch for the talented actor. The illusion of our reckless hippie driver spiraling down into an endless abyss of hell was created by placing Aston on a flat board, which was connected to a cable and then rotated in a counterclockwise corkscrew fashion. Randy Miller's demonic welcoming committee consisted of a trio of hellishly hip creatives, Theodore J. Flicker, producer Jack Laird, and night gallery writer-director Gene Kearney. John Astin, who directed three of Night Gallery's finest segments and made a previous visit to hell in Pamela's voice, is a real trip with his stoner's grin, Sonny Bono quaff, and shriekingly horrid period garb made up of velvet pants, two-tone leather boots, and swank shoulder bag. The actor fully embraced writer Theodore J. Flicker's twisted, subversive humor, as Aston explains in the following clip. It, it was a Ted Flicker operation. Ted uh, wrote it, uh, directed it, and uh -huh. played the devil. I don't think he ever got the credit for it either. In Theodore J. Flicker's original script, 
Randy Miller lights up a cigarette and tosses the match, triggering the appearance of Fat Lady. This script detail was changed to Aston taking out a stick of gum and tossing the wrapper. Presumably, cigarette smoking in hell is considered a fire hazard. Hey, lady, is this it? Is this what? You know, hell. No, this is the waiting room. We're very rushed. They're sending too many people down here lately. I don't know what they expect us to do. You'll have to take your turn just like every... This Night Gallery segment is as far as one can get from an episode of The Twilight Zone. Hell's Bells is the quintessential example of why young people at the time totally dug this show. One might say the horror equivalent of Saturday Night Live. In fact, writer-director Theodore J. Flicker was a product of that world and of that comedy culture. In the 1950s, Flicker was a member of Chicago's Compass Theater, America's first theater of improvisational comedy. In 1960, Flicker established the premise on New York's Bleecker Street, which became a venue for such performers as Buck Henry, Gene Hackman, and George Siegel. It was there that Flicker worked with his friends Joan Darling and Bill Savagno, both of whom worked with Flicker on his second season Night Gallery vignette, Junior. Bill Svano recalls that his friend Ted Flicker was an artist ahead of his time, as we'll hear in the following clip. Some really top people said, you know, Ted Flicker is, the, is our premier satirist and um, uh, Mel Brooks is our premier vulgarian. He had that tragic thing, you know, like tenors always want to be baritones, that he wanted to be, quote, more serious. And we couldn't convince him that what he was doing was serious. I, I think he felt he wanted to compete with Mike Nichols uh, and, you know, other people who he felt were getting more acclaim. But the, the things that he was good at, he was just incredible at. You know, from all the years of working with him and knowing him, I was just amazed at his, his ability to come up with incredibly imaginative stuff. Theodore J. Flicker was equally successful in both television and movies, writing for such TV productions as The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Andy Griffith Show, The Man from Uncle, I Dream of Jeannie, and in 1975, Flicker co-created the classic ABC TV comedy series, Barney Miller. His movie work includes such films as The Troublemaker, Spin Out, Up in the Cellar, and Flicker's 1967 social and political satire, his brilliant classic black comedy, The President's Analyst, starring James Coburn. The vacuous Mr. Bohr was played by longtime character actor Hank Warden. He's best known for appearing in 17 movies with his friend John Wayne, including Stagecoach, Fort Apache, and The Searchers. Warden's last role was in the cult TV series Twin Peaks in 1991. He died the following year at the age of 91. Theodore J. Flicker's genius manifested itself in several ways. Writer, producer, director, actor, but Flicker's many talents became a point of contention on the set of Night Gallery as the Hell's Bells writer, director, actor ended up locking horns with his irascible director of photography, Lionel Curly Linden. On the set, 
Lionel Linden made Flickr's life a living hell, not only in front of the camera, but also behind it. I want to tell you, when you act and direct, you really need your cameraman, Flickr said. So they had a makeup chair right near the camera. I had to be made up in stages as I was directing. Curly decided to dislike me. He couldn't stand it that there I was, the director, getting my face painted red and horns put on my head. He just resented the hell out of me for having the nerve to write and direct and then act in it. The veteran cinematographer was openly sarcastic, insulting, and uncooperative with his young director. For Flickr, it was the single most unpleasant experience he ever had on a TV show. John Astin, who had a less turbulent experience with Lyndon directing A Fear of Spiders, confirms Lyndon's hellfire and brimstone behavior on the set of Hell's Bells, as we'll hear in the following clip. Curly was a wonderful cinematographer. When he got a mad on for somebody, it was awful. He just seemed to have it in for Ted, and, and it was clear to everyone on the set. Uh, and yet, product of the two of them was... Uh, I mean, I, that's why I say I didn't think Ted got enough credit, because Ted, uh, did, through all the obstacles, Ted created a, a very, uh, a very uh, nice piece. Slide people. Our irritatingly enthusiastic Mr. Tourist was played by veteran actor John J. Fox. Fox also played the heckler in the first season Make Me Laugh and the hostile sidewalk Santa Claus in the second season Night Gallery episode The Messiah on Mott Street. Another small script change here. Originally, our happy vacation couple discusses taking a picture of the Goodyear blimp. That was ultimately changed to, quote, one of those new 747s, as NBC didn't want to give free advertising to the venerable tire manufacturer. As Mr. Devil explained, this small slice of hell is like experiencing a bit of heaven for fans of Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Thanks for listening to our commentary. At the time of this taping, the second edition of our book, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, an After Hours Tour, is set for release sometime in spring of 2022. Massively expanded and researched, fully illustrated with color and black and white photos, and more than twice its original length, it's for all practical purposes an entirely new book. For fans of the series of Rod Serling and of television history, we feel it's a must read. We hope you take a look at it. 